Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. We're exposed to carcinogens and toxins daily without being able to discern them in our environment. We can't see them, smell them, hear them or taste them. Numerous studies show that forever chemicals or highly toxic fluorinated compounds, which never break down in our bodies or in our environment, are present in the blood of the vast majority of Americans. These chemicals can cause cancer, hormone disruption and weaken childhood immunity. They're in your food packaging, in your clothes, in your personal care products. These chemicals were manufactured because they're grease, oil and water resistant. We chose convenience over caution, profit over people. We must find another way. Yet our regulatory system is rife with issues. It's slow, weak and encroached by industry. The EPA recently issued a health advisory that no amount of PFAS in our drinking water is safe. One would think that if the EPA found something hazardous, it should be prohibited immediately. Yet its health advisory has little regulatory effect. This should change. After all, a government is meant to govern. Industry has encroached on our government and continues to do so via lobbying on the one hand to influence favourable legislation and via litigation on the other to prevent the enforcement of unfavourable laws. One example is Monsanto's fight to keep glyphosate, the active ingredient in its product Roundup, out there and unlabeled. Over four decades, Monsanto has exerted pressure on the EPA to not classify glyphosate as a carcinogen despite growing scientific evidence. In 2015, the World Health Organization's International Agency for Research on Cancer classified glyphosate as a carcinogen and in 2017, California added it to its list of hazardous chemicals under the Safe Drinking Water and Toxic Enforcement Act, commonly known as Prop 65. Prop 65 requires businesses to disclose consumer exposure to the list of chemicals. Monsanto first argued for judicial review and having lost, sued for violation of its First Amendment rights. Monsanto was successful in its argument in the lower court that California failed to meet the requirement for compelled speech, which includes government health warnings, because the assessment that glyphosate is a carcinogen was controversial, including because the EPA had failed to classify it as a carcinogen. The requirement that there be no controversy is problematic and needs to be narrowly interpreted. Otherwise, it would allow industry to fund spurious scientific studies in order to seed doubt and manufacture controversy. Additionally, we should take a precautionary approach to public health, which includes allowing mandated health disclosures when there is solid scientific evidence behind it, even if there is a controversy. While the Ninth Circuit accepted that California cannot enforce the Prop 65 warning for acrylamide for lack of carcinogenic evidence, its recent decision that the EPA must review its failure to classify glyphosate as a carcinogen is promising for California's Prop 65 appeal for glyphosate. The tobacco industry, partnering with the chemical industry, conspired in an elaborate deception campaign to introduce and in some jurisdictions to mandate that toxic flame retardants be added to our clothes and furniture, including products for children, ostensibly for fire safety. Not only were flame retardants toxic and made fire even more of a health hazard, but despite their name, they did absolutely nothing to stop or delay fire breaking out. The industry's deception included specious studies, hiring doctors to lie to legislators, and establishing an ostensibly concerned nonprofit, Citizens for Fire Safety, of which members exclusively consisted of the three main producers of flame retardants. Brushed couldn't have written it better. 
Then there's fracking or hydraulic fracturing, which is the injection of a voluminous amount of water with a mixture of sand and hazardous chemicals into subsurface rock in order to fracture it and retrieve fossil fuels. Fracking has contaminated our groundwater, polluted our air, emits greenhouse gases, and has caused serious health issues to neighbouring communities. Yet the oil and gas industry, through a euphemism we like to call lobbying, has extracted exemptions from the Clean Water Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, and more. Moreover, the industry has weaponized trade secret laws to prevent disclosure of its arguably proprietary chemicals so that we cannot know all the toxins pumped into the earth close to our groundwater and their true health risk. They fracked us. We need to prohibit fracking and stop providing exemptions to polluting industries. All of us are impacted by our environmental toxicity, albeit some more than others. Industrial and chemical processing facilities and extraction operations largely neighbour poor communities of colour. We cannot achieve environmental justice without addressing the social and economic inequities that underlie it. The Center for Environmental Health in California advocates to limit and eliminate toxins from our environment. It conducts research into the toxicity of consumer products and the toxic consequences of various industries. It informs the public of health risk and industry deception. It advocates for better policy with respect to environmental health and environmental justice. And it combats bad actors, including by being a plaintiff in numerous suits. I spoke to its science director, Dr. Jimena Diaz-Leva, about these issues and more. Welcome to Gravity, Humana. Thank you. And thank you for having me. So you're the science director for the Center for Environmental Health. Please tell our audience about the Center for Environmental Health's mission and its advocacy to limit toxic products in our homes and toxic activities in our environment. Yes, of course. So Center for Environmental Health is a 26-year-old nonprofit based out of Oakland, California. And our mission is to protect people from toxic chemical exposures uh, through advocacy, uh, work with corporations, with uh, consumers, uh, through litigation and using science uh, to limit and to hold accountable uh, those companies that put chemicals in products without letting consumers know. Hmm. Including being plaintiffs in several lawsuits. Yeah, so litigation is, is one of our strategies uh, that we use when um, we do discover that there are chemicals that haven't been disclosed in products, um, and we bring different companies, uh, lawsuits against different companies to try and make sure that they, usually we are able to fit or achieve reformulation, so they'll completely take the chemical out of the product, but in the worst case scenario, you know, for us, they'll at least have to warn folks of what's in the product. Right. So that they might not use it. So let's begin by discussing unconventional oil and gas development, uh, namely hydraulic mm-hmm. fracturing or fracking. And uh, let's mm-hmm. break it down a bit and discuss the injection and extraction process and its impact on the environment. Yeah. So, I mean, hydraulic fracturing or fracking is really getting gas out of this old shale rock that's very far underground. And to to do that, you have to inject at a very high pressure water that's laced with all of these toxic chemicals, many of which we don't even know uh, what the chemicals are. Uh, And then this water kind of breaks apart the rock uh, and releases this gas, the natural gas that is then, you know, extracted um, and further refined for use. 
But in that process, the water that's used, which is it's actually very large quantities of water, becomes pretty much unusable afterwards because of all these chemicals that are added to it. Uh, and so that poses a, a big threat to surrounding communities uh, who might get, you know, contaminated water uh, or even gas leaks, you know, in their homes. There's some really, really powerful imagery and, and videos from fracking communities around the U.S. Uh, where you see people turn on their water taps and there's natural gas contaminating the water and they light, you know, a match or a lighter underneath their tap and it just combusts and you see a flame. Um, so it's, it's really particularly concerning uh, for the community surrounding these fracking sites. All right. So we're using a lot of fresh water. So that's freshwater depletion. We're uh, pumping mm-hmm. lots of toxic chemicals into that water, and then that might leak into uh, surrounding groundwater. We're emitting methane mm-hmm. into the atmosphere, which um, propels yep. global warming, I think, at higher levels than um, other greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide. Um, And it also appears to induce earthquakes. And apparently that was controversial for a while, but it's kind of common sense, right? If we're pumping pressurized liquid to intentionally fracture the subsurface rocks, it seems like common sense that we might induce earthquakes. Yeah. No, I mean, the whole process itself from beginning to end is, is incredibly toxic and just, you know, there's no reason to be to be having to do all of this to get out these fossil fuels. You know, there's, we have... Other options, we have renewable energy options, and this is kind of the last-ditch effort of the fossil fuel industry to be able to extract this shale uh, oil from the bottom of these deposits. Yeah, it imperils our environment, and particularly Mm -hmm. now that we're in this climate emergency, but it makes no sense. But it also imperils us. Um, A study earlier this year released by the Physicians for Social Responsibility and Concerned Health Professionals of New York detailed how fracking causes birth defects, cancer, heart disease, asthma, pneumonia, and other diseases that deplete our organs and tissue. It's basically a cornucopia of catastrophe. And a study published yesterday in Environmental Health Perspectives concluded that acute lymphoblastic leukemia, the most common in children under 14, is highly elevated in children exposed to fracking. Now, I'm not sure if our listeners know this, but more than 17 million people in the U.S., including 4 million children, live within two kilometers or 1.24 miles of fracking wells. I mean, that's that's just incredible. Yeah. It's just absurd. It's unacceptable, really. And, you know, we know from from all the research that's out there that those communities that live closest to not just fracking sites, but oil and gas wells as well are, you know, those that are most at risk that already face disproportionate uh, health risks from, you know, from toxic pollution and from other health disparities. Right. And the poor working communities of color. I mean, you're not going to see a fracking well next to, you know, billionaires row in San Francisco or something, you know? <laughs> no. And, and you've seen many of the states, you know, that have already banned fracking, states like New York, Vermont, even though there's no shale deposits, Vermont banned fracking. And they're not, you know, those aren't the states that have weak environmental regulations. The states that do have weak environmental regulations are the ones where fracking is occurring. And so there isn't any real government oversight either of what's happening in these places. So you do have these these really well-documented, you know, leaks and contamination events. Now, you would think that the Safe Drinking Water Act would 
prevent this. And yet fracking is exempted for the Safe Drinking Water Act, (laughs) probably due to a euphemism we like to call lobbying. And the, and the fact that there's uh, that the oil and gas companies don't disclose all these toxic chemicals that they're allowed to use, they don't even mm-hmm. disclose it. I mean, how can we even know the full risks if we don't know the chemicals? And they're utilising trade secrets to prevent us from knowing what toxic chemicals they're actually putting into this uh, water that is so close to where communities live. Yeah, the oil and gas industry is one of the industries in the United States that's that's allowed to inject these super hazardous materials completely unchecked, you know, directly into our into our water adjacent to our underground drinking water supplies. And exactly as you mentioned, they're uh, you know cloaked under these trade secrets. They're allowed to not disclose the identity of these chemicals. And well, how can you know what the health effects of these chemicals are? Or you know, if a, a case of cancer, a rare form of cancer, then a, in a resident that's nearby one of these fracking sites, if it's associated with this chemical, well, you just can't know if you don't know the identity of the chemical, because if you can't have you know the the scientific studies that then develop all of the the models, the toxicological models of what these chemicals do inside our bodies. So yeah, it's it's completely ridiculous. It's it's incredibly harmful and you know it, it is going unchecked because as you say there are private interests there are lobbyists that are able to you know influence government at all levels you know not just the federal level but state levels too to continue permitting fracking mm, but hopefully it's not all doom and gloom california is going to have a long overdue ban right in 2024 mm-hmm. i believe it's going to come into effect and um new york still has yeah. the moratorium and Uh, And the Fifth Circuit uh, just struck down uh, the lower court's blocking of Biden's moratorium and leasing new oil and drill sites. So that's really good news (laughs) for for a change. (laughs) Yeah, we need some of that. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, we do. Um, Okay, so let's move on to forever chemicals. What are they? Mm -hmm. Where are they? And what risks do they pose? Yes, forever, forever chemicals. Per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS, as they're just commonly known, um, and then colloquially known as these forever chemicals because they really don't break down in the environment. Um, essentially, they're these synthetic man-made chemicals that were um, developed over 50 years ago now, I believe. Uh, and most commonly known, one of them is most commonly known through people who use nonstick pans and Teflon. Um, they're grease-proofing, water-resistant type uh, chemicals, so that's why they're used in these nonstick pans. But there are a class of chemicals that's now, I believe, over 12,000 different you know, individual chemicals, and, and they're all highly toxic. Uh, they all persist in the environment, so you know, wherever they're used, they'll They'll travel into different food chains or, you know, end up in people's bodies and they tend to bioaccumulate. So they'll they'll stay in your body because they don't get broken down um, just because of the particular chemical property of how they've been uh, manufactured. And and the very sad and frightening part is that they're truly everywhere now at this point because because of their persistent nature. um, You know, you've there's was a study, I think, two weeks ago that came out that found PFAS in rainwater. 
um, and at levels higher than what the Environmental Protection Agency, what the EPA has recently said is, you know, the safe lifetime health advisory limit for PFAS, for two particular PFAS compounds in water, which is they set a limit that's more or less zero. And that's just to the fact of how toxic these chemicals are, you know, that the, the preeminent health agency in the U.S. is saying that there's really no safe limit here for these chemicals is saying a lot, but that we're still finding them absolutely everywhere uh, in rainwater, in the oceans, in rivers, in dairy products, in food packaging. Um, they've just been really, they've been used in all kinds of consumer products and cosmetics in uh, rain gear, you know, to waterproof rain gear. Um, and it's, it's really unfortunate because there, it, the research has been showing that there's just no real good way to get rid of these um, PFAS chemicals and the cleanup and remediation of sites that have been contaminated with them. Uh, a big kind of category of those sites is actually military bases where firefighting foam has had PFAS in it for quite a long time. Um, and there's well-documented kind of areas where there have been tra training exercises with military and firefighters, and then the areas surrounding these bases are, are highly contaminated. And now there's has to be a lot of money spent to try and figure out how to clean up these spaces, but it's very difficult. The compounds, these compounds break down um, into smaller, what are called uh, shorter chain PFAS compounds, and then they get everywhere in the environment, accumulate in animals' bodies and our bodies. Um, and it's it's very unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah, and it's really unfortunate that the EPA can issue a health advisory, like you just said, states that uh, basically the risk level is um, near zero, but then it's actually not a regulatory action and it's not binding and it's just, hey, here's technical advice to all the water operators out there. You shouldn't have this in your water. It's a risk, but yeah. uh, okay, I'm going to go now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, you should set it at zero, but here's... <laughs> Here's no enforcement mechanism for you. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, we laugh, but we're also crying, right? <laughs> yeah. We've got to figure out um, what to do here and have a government that actually governs, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So just um, there's a lot of literature out there. And when I'm reading, maybe because um, I don't have a chemical background, so it all glosses over, but to have like PFAS, PFOA, PFS, Gen X, are we talking about the same mm -hmm. chemical? Yeah. <laughs> so we're talking about the same class of chemicals. So PFAS are, are really the class of chemicals. They share the similarity and that what characterizes them is these bonds, these chemical bonds between carbon atoms and fluorine atoms. And that's what gives them this property of being really, really strongly bonded. And, and for, you know, for the purposes of manufacturing, it's great because you can do things like nonstick pans and, and waterproof jackets, but for, for environmental and public health, it's not great because they don't break down over time. Um, but yeah, it's a class of chemicals that contains over 12,000, you know, individual compounds um, and more are being designed all the time by the chemical industry. So some of the most well-known ones are, like you were saying, PFOA, PFOA, um, and PFOS, PFOS. Uh, those have been around for a while longer. And so there have been more epidemiological and toxicological studies on them. And we understand much better what those do to people. 
Right. And how do we know whether they're in our products? I mean, in California, we have Prop 65, which is ubiquitous, <laughs> but does it cover these? So Prop 65 only covers um, currently four PFAS chemicals and then two more were just listed this past year, but that won't go in effect for like another year. Um, it does cover PFOA and PFOS, which again are kind of the two best known and probably the, the biggest body of literature just showing how toxic they are. But it's certainly not adequate enough, you know. And, and as I was saying, really, these chemicals need to be managed and regulated as a class because there's over 12,000 of them. You can't go setting regulations for one at a time. You know, that, that will take forever. And it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense when there's so much similarity in the chemical properties of each of the individual compounds. And we know, you know, if they're kind of chemically similar in their structure, that means that their toxicological profile when people are exposed to them is going to be similar. So, you know, these are hazardous chemicals. We just need to blanket, you know, regulate all of them together as a class and say that it's not okay to be putting them in consumer products anymore. No, what are we going to do? Wait 12,000 years to get all of them? <laughs> exactly. And by then there'll be 12,000 more. Yep. And so we just mentioned Prop 65, which is great. It's done far more good than Ellen. I know you've, uh, your organization has really utilized Prop 65 to effect, mm-hmm. um, but there is a problem with it, right? Like it's, it's so ubiquitous in California that nobody really yeah. pays money much attention to it anymore. I mean, that's kind of the problem, right? And it's not only ubiquitous, it's nebulous. Like for instance, um, if you go to any bakery, they'll just have the sign there because of, uh, what is it? Acrylamide, yeah. Acrylamide, right. So if you heat anything, right? Like you, if you, if you have toast, if you bake anything, coffee, and then you think, well, you know, now I can't do anything with my life. But the thing is, it yep. doesn't say, hey, this has forever chemicals in it. Now, if it said that, maybe you wouldn't buy it. But it just says this is, you know, known to the state of California to be a risk to cancer, just like, you know, when you go to the pool, you have it. Well, he has this chlorine in the pool, but I'm going to swim. <laughs> yes. It's, you know, there's certainly certainly things about Prop 65 that aren't perfect. You know, recently it was the, the agency in California that uh, is tasked with enforcing and overseeing Prop 65, the Office of Environmental health hazard assessment, they changed the the warning language and regulation so that you would have to state on a warning at least one of the chemicals, and then if it's a carcinogen or if it's a reproductive toxicant. Um, but I, I absolutely agree. There's a huge problem of overwarning, and that means that people kind of just check out because they see these warnings on everything. You know, they go to, they go to Disneyland and they see a Prop 65 warning, um, and it's because of diesel engine exhaust, you know, from some of the rides. But but it does mean that people, you know, aren't able to actually take in that information and use it to make decisions about the risk management. Um, but Prop 65 also has a lot of really fabulous things that I think people aren't as aware of. One of them that, you know, we use a lot at the Center for Environmental Health is this part of Prop 65 that allows you to bring public interest litigation um, because another part of the statute is that Prop 65 protects, you know, air emissions and water uh, quality and communities that are next to facilities that are emitting chemicals that are listed under Prop 65 that are above the limits set by the state, you know, that we can bring lawsuits against those facilities on behalf of 
of communities on behalf of the public, um, and we're able to get really meaningful and substantive health protective relief from that. And that's a huge part of the statute that I think fewer people know about. I think a lot of people obviously know about the warning on consumer products, but that's been another kind of arm of CEH's work that has been really uh, impactful, I think. Yeah, I, I really, I agree. It, it's um, a wonderful part of the law. Um, and of course, you know, the negative side really just pales uh, in comparison. You need to encourage this litigation, right? Because the state knows mm-hmm. it has limited resources, so it needs this private litigation. And of course, attorney's fees come with it, as they should, right? Mm-hmm. But then, and of course, I'm, sp- I'm speaking as an attorney here, but, but the <laughs> issue is when you're on the other side, right? And you have a small business that gets a letter that says, hey, you know, yep. you're going to have to pay us like $30,000 or, and then what's kind of happening with all this regulation is that small businesses kind of give up. Um, they really mm-hmm. can't fight the attorney fees. And um, I, I, I don't know the answer. I want the regulation, And I don't want to have just these behemoths that are the only ones that can deal with all the regulation, right? Yeah. And continue to be in business. But I don't know what the third way is, but I think we got to find it because right now no one's paying attention to the disclosures and (laughs) Mm -hmm. a lot of small businesses are being hurt. However, it is still really important and also on a national level because what happens in California impacts Mm -hmm all of the U.S. Absolutely. It's not economical to put a disclosure just on California products or uh, take an ingredient out or an additive out um, because we're so large. Mm -hmm. That's that's good. I wish I had um, some spark to say, you know, what what could uh, on a policy level help us, but I don't. I just see the problem, unfortunately. But who knows, maybe someone out there um, will ruminate on it. We at CH3 have a, a policy team and, and part of our engagement with WEHA, the Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment, is meeting with them, you know, semi-regularly to talk through possible changes to the language in the statute to make it, you know, better exactly what you're saying to kind of reduce these, you know, there's a lot of bad private enforcers out there, people who aren't out there for, you know, improving public and environmental health, but just to, to make money off of suing small businesses, as you're talking about. And there's ways to crack down on that. Um, and that OWEHA is trying to do that. And we're trying to be a part of those conversations, you know, what tweaks can be made in the ways that you send notices of violation to to the people that fail to disclose these chemicals and and we're hoping you know over time and with that relationship that we can improve prop 65 right because there are so many as you pointed out challenges right now to the statute from you know businesses uh, and commercial interests who don't want to be being hit with fines all the time which makes absolute sense and we as well don't want to be punishing, you know, small businesses for something that's really further up in the manufacturing and supply chain, you know, where these chemicals are being added. Yeah. I hope that there is a policy solution, but in in any case, it's a really, mostly a very, very good law and it's um, helped us a lot here in California. Um, So let's move to food packaging. Um, It holds our food, so presumably it shouldn't be chock block full of cancer-causing chemicals, Um, yet it seems that this clandestine and uh, unwanted additional pizza topping 
is Mm -hmm. really in your takeaway pizza packaging. Mm -hmm. Because these chemicals, which we talked about, these forever chemicals, um, I guess they have grease resistance. So they love to put this in our (laughs) food wrapping, it seems. Yeah, in food packaging. How is this legal? Because (laughs) so under 21 USC 348A, the food additives, and that includes anything that can reasonably migrate into food. So right from packaging, like doesn't that, that Mm -hmm. would be a reasonable migration into food. No, I mean, I'm no scientist, so please correct me if I'm wrong. They certainly do migrate into the food. Okay. So, so now we've got, you know, um, that additives are presumed unsafe, right? Unless Mm -hmm. they're um, generally recognized as safe. That's the exception, but forever chemicals can't be generally recognized as safe, right? Because they're not the Mm -hmm. common ingredients. Now I know that the toxic free food act um, has been introduced into Congress and hopefully that will pass. It hasn't, that would end this um, grass um, exception. Mm. Now, this seems to be utilized by the industry as this massive loophole, right? <laughs> it is. Absolutely. The grass loophole is, is enormous, you know, and gives such blanket protection to these companies to just have PFAS and not just PFAS, but also phthalates and food packaging, both of which, you know, PFAS certainly carcinogenic, but also an endocrine disrupting chemical. Uh, so especially harmful for, you know, young children, uh, pregnant women. Um, so CEH, you know, has been quite involved in efforts, not just in California, but also nationally. You know, in California this past year, Governor Newsom signed AB 1200 um, into law, which is a bill to get these PFAS chemicals out of food packaging, um, paper-based food packaging, and to disclose the use of them in, in cookware. But there's there's certainly more to do, you know, at, at the at the federal level. FDA recently, um, unfortunately, denied our petition that we submitted with a few other uh, NGOs and organizations to have them finally decide to ban phthalates used in food packaging. And, and phthalates are this other class of, of chemicals that leach into the food and that are known to be endocrine disrupting chemicals. Right. Now, you um, were a plaintiff, in, and by you, I mean the Center for Environmental Health, was a plaintiff to issue a writ of mandamus um, against the FDA. Now, you had petitioned the FDA, like, tell me if I get this wrong, but in 2016 to make a yeah. decision. And now, under the mm-hmm. law, any person can petition the FDA to um, either allow a food additive or um, prohibit a food additive. Um, And now we talked about that includes something that can reasonably migrate into food, including um, an additive in our food packaging. So phthalates, no neurotoxins. Um, Mm -hmm. You petitioned way back in 2016. Now they have to give you a decision in 180 days. Now it seems they kind of faulted because (laughs) in 2021, they still hadn't issued a decision. That's way longer and um, yeah. <laughs> that violates the Administrative Procedures Act. In fact, they were unlawfully withholding agency action, right? Mm-hmm. So the court issued a writ of mandamus. Um, you received your uh, decision, but the decision was, well, no, we're going to continue to allow these neurotoxins. I mean, how did they justify their reasoning? You know, we we're going to keep pushing them, but 
honestly, there's there's no way to justify this reasoning. The body of scientific literature out there of, of studies that have shown humans' exposure to phthalates and the health effects that result from that, it's it's fairly conclusive. You know, these are chemicals that absolutely should not be in contact with food that we eat because we are ingesting them and our kids are ingesting them and they're harmful. They're harmful to developing bodies. They're harmful to to anyone at any life stage. And it's really unconscionable that FDA would continue to allow these things to be in our food packaging. Yeah, this is the this is the government authority that's tasked with making sure that our food is safe. Um, and they are utilizing still this, this huge loophole to permit these chemicals. Yeah, it's shocking. So if we go to AB uh 1200, um, mm-hmm. which is coming into effect January 1, 2023, which you mentioned earlier, and, and also uh, the state of Washington and Maine also have, um, looks like, impending bans. New York already banned um, the PFAS uh, additives. So what's, what is missing in the law? It's a great step forward, but what are we still seeing in our um, food packaging and cookware in California even after the passage of AB 1200? You know, AB 1200 concerns PFAS and paper-based food packaging, but we've found PFAS in all kinds of food packaging, including um, molded fiber uh, takeout containers, you know, kind of those those ones that you might get like a salad in uh, in California. And so, you know, the law can be, it could be broader in terms of covering uh, a wider degree of, of products. And then, you know, as I mentioned for the cookware, it just requires disclosure of the use of PFAS, but not it doesn't actually ban um, the use of PFAS in the cookware. So that's certainly something that you know we'll continue to push uh, at a policy level to try and get you know movement on that end. And then really we just we need to prohibit PFAS in general, this entire class of chemicals from consumer products, including you know personal care products as well is a big category that PFAS are in um, that people are obviously using on a daily basis. So when you say personal care products, do you mean cosmetics and um, shampoo and body wash and so forth? Yeah, cosmetics is, is a big one for sure. I mean, we've also found cases of, of PFAS and other things. Uh, I think a Last year or a couple of years ago, there was PFAS found in these period underwear, you know, these things underwear. Um, and so they're, they're in all kinds of stuff where you really wouldn't expect to find them. And, and yet there they are. Mm, horrible. Also, neurotoxins, uh, no neurotoxins, phthalates, um, they're, um, they cause uh, problems with our hormones, right? Now that's... Um, that's not under AB 1200. That's allowed in foodware still. Yeah, phthalates are not covered under AB 1200. And they are, as you mentioned, they're hormone endocrine disrupting chemicals. So they mess with your with your endocrine system and all your hormone regulated processes in your body. So they're, they're linked to a wide range of health effects, you know, birth defects, infertility, cancer, diabetes, asthma. Um, and the people, as we know, that are most, you know, at risk are, are children and, and babies. And so these absolutely should not be anywhere near our food or our food packaging. And the way that phthalates are kind of used in food or the chemicals themselves, they're 
very easily come off of food packaging. Um, so they're of particular concern because they are able to to really make their way from the packaging into the food quite easily. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a nightmare. Okay, so let's move to um, another nightmare, uh, glyphosate, a herbicide, or rather, as I believe Polly Higgins coined the term for herbicides, uh, biocides, because uh, I think that's more appropriate because it really um, looks at their uh, wider injurious impact, right? Not just on plants, but on the entire environment and including us, right? We're part of the environment, including our bodies. So um, it's been linked to cancer. Mm -hmm. Numerous jurisdictions are banning it um, across the world. So Austria banned it in 2019. It looks like um, the majority of European countries will be banning it in the next few years. Mm -hmm. um, Thailand and Vietnam are banning it. Um, but the U.S. is really lagging behind. Yeah. No, I mean, glyphosate, it's, it's the active ingredient in Roundup. You know, anyone, I think, who has, has been in the market for buying for buying herbicides to kill weeds and even in their yard knows that Roundup is kind of the big name. Um, when you go to the hardware store or wherever you might go and, and purchase something and it's, it's used in enormous quantities. You know, I think of the herbicides that are out there, it's, it's the most used in terms of the volume that's supplied per year. And yes, as you mentioned, it's, it's a, it's a well-known carcinogen. Um, and there's been, you know, quote unquote controversy surrounding it being a carcinogen uh, that's made its way into into you know the the realm of prop 65 in California because there's currently a challenge actually uh, based on a first amendment to the listing of glyphosate under prop 65 um, but it's you know it's it's actually produced by <clears throat> excuse me by Monsanto and it's incredibly harmful and I think, as you mentioned, the countries around the world that are banning it are are far ahead of what the U.S. is in terms of regulation of of glyphosate because it's it's a well known and very harmful herbicide. Yeah, and um, there was a recent study published that showed that it was in um, like the it had a multitude of people around the U.S. involved in the study, and eighty percent of the uh, urine samples had <laughs> had the herbicide um in mm -hmm. the urine so um it's everywhere um now california added it to prop 65 in 2017 but there's a challenge now yeah. to that yes there's a there's a first amendment challenge which is essentially the basis of it is that you know the epa a few years ago listed it as probably carcinogenic um Whereas the World Health Organization's body on international uh, cancer, their kind of cancer risk body, listed it as car as a car a known carcinogen, um, and so this First Amendment challenge has been essentially saying, well, it seems like there's a discrepancy between what the EPA is saying and what the World Health Organization is saying, and so you know, by requiring us to say that this is a known carcinogen, you're violating our First Amendment right to, to free speech because we're making a claim that is a completely scientifically founded. Right, um, which is... Um, so, yeah. <laughs> which should imagine. fail. It should fail. Yeah. That is, commercial sp <laughs> speech um, is protected in the First Amendment, but it is... Um, 
protected less than um, other speech. I mean, in my view, I would <laughs> love to change some First Amendment jurisprudence so that, for instance, direct-to-consumer drug advertising <laughs> is not mm-hmm. uh, protected um, and so forth. But, um, yeah, there's... Uh, yeah. Th- that, We're that... certainly hoping it fails because it would set a, a very harmful precedent if it, it does not fail. Um, yeah. And I mean, the, the the reality with Roundup too, is that it kind of just feeds this horrible agro-industrial cycle, you know, in which it's used to the service that was really designed to kill weeds and in areas with using genetically modified seeds. And then now there's all of these weeds out there that are resistant to Roundup. So it just requires the application of yet more herbicides. And it's this horrible reinforcing feedback loop of, you know, trying to modify for for plants that can be resistant to herbicides and then trying to find even more toxic herbicides to try and get rid of these weeds that become resistant to the herbicide. Oh, dear. <laughs> um, well, let's move to flame retardants. Mm-hmm. seems that the tobacco and chemical companies uh, deceived the nation a few decades ago, they didn't reveal the interest mm-hmm. and there's some uh, false testimony and we have flame retardants basically in a lot of products and it's toxic. So what are flame retardants? Um, do they really prevent fire and burns and, um, and what are their health effects? Yeah, so flame retardants is kind of the name for these different chemicals. There are some that are kind of organophosphorus or organonitrogen based. Um, And they're chemicals that, you know, as you said, were kind of added in this industry push to say that, oh, you know, what what about if you fall asleep on the couch and you're smoking a cigarette and suddenly your couch lights on fire? We need to be adding these things to, to the foam, you know, inserts inside of furniture. But the reality is that when, you know, the, if the furniture does go up in flames, this these flame retardants make the smoke that much more toxic because these are carcinogenic chemicals. Uh, it's a huge threat to firefighters um, who have to then, you know, go put out a house fire or whatever it might be. And they don't make you safer. In fact, they're, they are associated with a lot of health risks, including, you know, aside from cancer, endocrine and thyroid disruption and alterations of your immune system and reproductive toxicity as well. But they were suddenly added to all of these furnishing products and mattresses and children's products as well, like car seats. Um, and so it's it's been a really harmful and unfortunate realization of the last, you know, 10, 20 years that all of a sudden these things that are supposed to protect us are in fact making us very unsafe. Right. Instead of saying, hey, maybe not smoke at all because <laughs> there yeah. are other health um, effects. But obviously, if you fall asleep with your cigarette lit, um, you might get a fire and that would be bad. But um, let's yeah. not focus on the cigarette part. Let's focus on, well, do you have this toxic chemical in your couch? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, um the Center for Environmental Health has worked to flip the market with respect to flame retardants. May you please elaborate a bit on that? It's been quite a success story. Yeah, I mean, previously there was regulation that essentially, you know, mandated that these flame retardants be added to things like furniture and um, children's, you know, like car seats and products and 
the Center for Environmental Health played a, a key role in getting this regulation eliminated and also working with large institutional purchasers, um, folks like Kaiser Permanente, to make sure that they weren't buying any furniture um, that had these flame retardants in them. So kind of also working, you know, apart from the regulatory realm in the kind of institutional purchasing realm to make sure that folks chose products that didn't have flame retardants. Um, and then eventually we were able to get, you know, some legislation, AB 2998 in California, uh, that was signed in 2018, I believe, uh, and became effective in 2020. And, is, you know, finally eliminating these flame retardants in furniture and mattresses and children's products um, like car seats. So it's been a huge success story, you know, and a, a really big kind of, I think, case study in, in trying to get some of these things that were once thought to make products safer and are actually toxic and getting them out of products. Yeah, it's it's quite um it's quite a success story. Thank you so much. It's um really great for California and again, if companies have to change their products for California, um some might find it just uh, economical to do it um throughout the US. Mm-hmm. So, um yeah. And of course, other jurisdictions look at what California's doing and then um you get copycat legislation which would be uh fantastic, but it really is a horribly um, interesting narrative, I have to say. Something like Mm -hmm. the three-penny opera, right? (laughs) How um, (laughs) these two uh, industries uh, concocted uh, something so um, toxic. I I mean, the tobacco industry kind of outdid itself again. (laughs) They're like, oh. (laughs) Yeah. You know, there's a fabulous book out there, Merchants of Doubt, that also talks about the the tobacco industry's kind of ties and and the climate change kind of lobbying to try and obscure the evidence that, you know, companies like Exxon and Chevron have had for years on on the effects of burning fossil fuels on, you know, climate change. So it seems that they have their hands in many different pots, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Uh, Mac the Knife would uh, give them a lot of compliments. <laughs> um, okay, so lead. Yeah. yeah, it's still out there, still out there. Fortunately, <laughs> yeah, it really is. So the Centre for Environmental Health um, also works uh, to limit the exposure of lead, particularly children's exposure to lead in our environment. Um, mm-hmm. And you sort of led the charge by um, helping eliminate uh, lead from uh, children's toys and candy and jewelry mm-hmm. and other products. I mean, it is just uh, insane that children's candy, <laughs> something they ingested, had lead in it. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, what is the current state of lead exposure uh, for children? Yeah, lead is, you know, as lead is so prevalent and there are many sources of exposure, unfortunately. So, you know, CDC has said a few years back there is no safe level of lead exposure for children. It is that toxic? You know, it's it's a neurotoxin. It's it causes developmental health effects, and the the effects of lead exposure are irreversible. And so, we need to make sure that there we remove every source of lead exposure for kids. Um, you know, one of the big ones, actually, that I think not as many people know about is 
lead in aviation fuel. Um, you know, we got rid of, of lead in gasoline for cars many, many years ago, but there's still lead in general aviation fuel, not for commercial jets, but for small single piston engine aircraft, um, the kinds that, you know, people, pilots learn to fly on. Um, and studies have now shown that 70% of lead emissions to the air in the U.S. are from these aircraft. And there happen to be, I believe, 3 million children living within a quarter mile of municipal airports and um, air, um, airstrips where these types of aircrafts are used. And so that's been kind of a huge area that CEH has been uh, interested in and trying to be involved in in terms of bringing together on-the-ground advocates and local agencies who are working to to try and figure out how we get these this leaded fuel um, permanently out of aircrafts because it's it's a huge source of exposure. Yeah, and it's the fact that children live so close to these airports. Mm-hmm. And there are schools. There are schools close to these airports, childcare facilities. Um, yeah, it's it's incredibly. It's incredibly concerning. Um, and CEH has been part of the efforts, at least in California, to get a few of uh, the municipal airport facilities uh, to at least warn residents, if not, you know, completely eliminate uh, flooded aviation sales at the airports, because many of these airplanes can actually use unleaded fuels. Um, but we're also now working at kind of an advocacy level to make sure that EPA uh, grants this endangerment finding, which they've finally decided to do uh, back in January, so that we can get the ball rolling and, and making sure that lead is prohibited in general aviation fuel and that there is just unleaded fuels available at these airports. Mm. And what about pipes? Lead-in pipes are, is still a concern. Obviously, you know, Flint is, is ever-present in people's minds, I think. Um, there's also lead in still in older homes, lead in paint that is a source of exposure for folks. Um, California has a great database that shows kind of areas where homes, I believe homes before that were built before 1970 or 1960 have a much higher tendency to have lead in the paint. And, you know, when that paint kind of flakes off or chips off, that becomes a source of exposure for kids. So uh, that's another big source. I mean, there's still places like battery recyclers, lead battery recyclers that emit lead and arsenic into the air um, that also become, you know, for communities that live nearby, those facilities are also a source of exposure. So let's move to um, children's exposure more generally to uh, toxic chemicals, to carcinogens um, in consumer products that are directed uh, and targeted towards children and um, also school lunches and the facility in general? Yeah, you know, we, we still continue to find products that say, you know, fashion accessories, things like little purses or belts that might be marketed towards children that have lead in them. Um, a lot of them, it's because the lead is either in the pigment and the paint in the products or um, it's in the vinyl. Um Vinyl production still uses lead as a stabilizer in some parts of the world. Um, and so we find a lot of those kind of like faux leather products that are made of vinyl uh, sometimes have high amounts of lead and also, you know, 
children's jewelry. Sometimes you might find lighter cadmium in there as well. Um, and so it is, it's incredibly toxic, especially when we know, you know, kids tend to put everything in their mouths. Um, and so ingestion of, of these Letty products is, is a real concern. It is. Um, I'd like to move now to some litigation uh, that you've been part of mm-hmm. in uh, Cape Fear. So the Cape Fear watershed. Um, yeah. How is it contaminated and um, why did you file suit? Yeah. So in the Cape Fear watershed, uh, Kimors, which is essentially DuPont, uh, was manufacturing this these PFAS chemicals, Gen X. It's called it's, it's kind of newer generation of, of PFAS chemicals. Uh, and they've been, you know, contaminating the Cape Fear River watershed with Gen X. Um, and so we're working with uh, local groups in North Carolina to sue Kimors and, and the EPA, actually, uh, to make sure that they force Kimors to pay for health studies in folks in the Cape Fear River watershed who are experiencing or coming down with cancer or with other uh, harmful, you know, diseases and to make sure that there's adequate, you know, enforcement of the regulations that now govern, you know, these PFAS chemicals. And so CH has been a part of that. We're, we're still fighting that, you know, unfortunately, EPA back in, I believe it was December, said they were granting our petition, which was asking uh, Kimors to fund a full-scale epidemiological study in the Cape Fear River watershed. And EPA said they were granting our our petition, but was not actually really complying with all the terms that we laid out and was only very narrowly granting a few things. So we're still um, fighting that. But it's it's a big issue and the Cape Fear River watershed isn't the only place, you know, in the U.S. that is, is facing these, these really severe issues from contamination of PFAS chemicals. Um, but Kimors is certainly here uh, one of the big bad actors in terms of being a manufacturer of these chemicals. Yeah, they're not exactly the, um, you know, fluffy Care Bear sort of type um, DuPont. So um, the Cape Fear watershed, I mean, that's, several communities right it affects several communities in north carolina Mm -hmm. and um you mentioned other watersheds are also contaminated what are the main watersheds that come to mind that face this sort of contamination in the u.s um i mean anywhere near these manufacturing facilities of of pfas chemicals i know in michigan i'm now forgetting the particular watershed itself but there's a place in Michigan that was contaminated with PFOA, um, this, you know, kind of one of the older PFAS chemicals that's best known. And there's, I believe it was a 3M facility there um, that was releasing PFOA into the water. So, you know, there are examples across the country, and it's it's just really unfortunate that we still aren't seeing, you know, adequate compensation and remediation from these from these chemical manufacturers. Right, and Cancer Alley in Louisiana. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a tragic case. And it seems, you know, we know about it, but then we just don't do anything about it on, on a federal level. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah, you know, as, as we were talking about the lobbying and the oil and gas industry, the chemical industry also does, does a really great job of lobbying so that 
states and the federal government don't crack down on them. Yeah, if only every vote came with a lobbyist. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, so um, let's move to Aliso Canyon. That seems to have been more successful. Um, so firstly, unfortunately, um, there was the leak. Would you mind please elaborating on um, what occurred in Aliso Canyon, what leaked and how it affected the residents there? Yes. So in 2015 in Aliso Canyon, there was a historic blowout. Um, it's a, a facility owned by SoCal Gas um, that was a holding facility for natural gas. And there was a, a storage field that experienced what is now known to be the largest natural gas leak ever in the U.S. And there were releases of benzene, which is a cancer-causing chemical. Uh, it's odorless. It's it's clear, so impossible, you know, for people to know that this was occurring. And methane. Um, and the community closest to this facility, Porter Ranch, that's located directly downwind and adjacent to this storage field, suffered the brunt of exposure to the this you know cocktail of of really toxic gases. Um, and even today, some residents still suffer from things like nosebleeds, dizziness, and respiratory problems caused by that benzene exposure. And so in the Center for Environmental Health, you know, with, with other plaintiffs brought a lawsuit against Southern California Gas, SoCal Gas. Uh, and in February of this past year, we finally reached a legally binding court-enforceable agreement with SoCal Gas. Uh, to compensate the residents nearby for these benzene exposures and also to to mandate fence line monitoring for benzene at the Aliso Oles- at the Canyon facility because previously they had only been monitoring for methane. Um, but benzene, you know, being the being the chemical that was actually the most kind of potent in terms of its toxicity wasn't being monitored before. So now they'll have to implement this fence line monitoring and also they'll be kind of near real time text messages and email alerts for the residents in the surrounding area to warn them if there's if there's a leak yeah because you can't smell it (laughs) right exactly which is you know what makes it so dangerous you know if you can imagine just being unknowingly exposed to all of this benzene and then suddenly having all of these health effects and not knowing what it was from you know it's it's incredibly Incredibly dangerous and irresponsible on the part of the cow-calf. Uh Yes. And, I mean, that's why we put, I don't actually know what chemical we put into gas, but um, it shouldn't have a smell. To make it smell. Yeah. Yeah. So you, otherwise we wouldn't know if there were a gas leak, right? <laughs> like, exactly. I mean, that's why folks have carbon monoxide monitors in their homes. So the Elisa Canyon, though, the facility was not shut down. No, it was not shut down, unfortunately, um, by SoCal Gas. But, you know, now they will, because uh, SoCal Gas failed to warn residents, you know, we're, we're watching them and we're going to make sure that this, these provisions for fence line monitoring are put in place. And if there is, for some reason, another exceedance in, in benzene, residents will know what's going on. How many like facilities are there in California and throughout the nation? Um, that I don't know for sure. I, I'd have to get back to you on that with how many. I know this one is one of the larger ones, certainly in Southern California. But there are a number, right? Yeah. 
and so, my number. So the settlement that you reached, is it just for this facility or the what they have to implement? Um, is that something that reverberates like to all the other like facilities in California? So our settlement is just with SoCal Gas for the Saliso Canyon uh, facility. So it will only mandate this facility to have this fence line benzene monitoring, unfortunately. But, you know, we hope that other communities that live near these facilities are also able to kind of use this as a case study for you know, advocacy efforts to get other facilities to implement monitoring. Yeah, it seems imperative, doesn't it? Particularly because uh, if you can't sense that there's a leak, I mean, how can you stop it in time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we just can't, we can't really trust these facilities to do monitoring, you know, on their own behalf. So fortunately, people, it falls on people and residents and, and organizations like ours to enforce. So the Center for Environmental Health also helps people with procurement. Um, how, uh-huh. how does that work? Yeah, so both our, our food program and our built environment program use kind of engagement with institutional purchasers as one of their core strategies. And that's essentially kind of going from the fact that we're hoping that we can shift markets towards more safer products that are, you know, free of toxic chemicals. So the food program works a lot with schools, actually, and kind of nutrition services directors to make sure that the foodware that's that's used in schools is free of things like PFAS chemicals or phthalates. Um, we'll work with them to make sure that whatever, you know, trays or disposable items they might use um, are ones that we've screened already and that we know don't have PFAS. And then really we're working with them to try and shift from disposables to reusables, uh, things like stainless steel uh, that we know is is much safer and obviously better for the environment in terms of not producing waste that goes to landfills. And then on on the side of the built environment program, there's a lot of work with institutions like universities, colleges, uh, medical facilities like Kaiser I was mentioning earlier. To make sure the things that they purchase in terms of flooring, in terms of furnishings, is are the those products that are safest, you know, and that are known to not contain things like flame retardants, or or to shift away from purchasing things like vinyl flooring, which are actually which is you know quite toxic in its manufacturing. So, how can listeners that aren't part of institutional purchases and so forth, um, how, how can uh, listeners protect their families and communities from toxic chemicals? I mean, are there re- are there resources available um, to figure out, you know, what to avoid and how to figure out if what they're buying has um, what they're trying to avoid in it? Yes, absolutely. You know, I, I'd invite listeners to take a look at our website, ch.org, um, and if you know, they're on social media to follow us on our social media channels because we often do post a lot of resources for, you know, individual consumers, not as much for the institutional purchasers um, to point people in the direction of safer products, you know, safer personal care products, tips for, you know, packing students' lunches, school lunches to kind of avoid the toxic chemicals that we talked about that are present in food packaging. Um, so there's a wealth of resources through through our social media channels and our website, and always you know encourage folks to to reach out if they have any particular kind of concerns or questions. You know, 
we have a wonderful team of people who work on community engagement. And I know my, my coworker, my colleague Karina, uh, has been working a lot with residents who are concerned about these municipal airports near them uh, and the leaded aviation fuel. And so we've been kind of directing people towards resources on that topic as well and always welcome other inquiries. So how can listeners help protect our environmental health? Yeah, I think certainly there there are products that people can avoid and and there are shifts that can be done in terms of markets, but you know, we can't really shop our way out of these issues. Mm-hmm. So the real solution is truly these are systemic issues and and advocacy and being involved in local politics is I think a huge way to make change and you know, from we often are also in our social media, not just pushing, you know, buying certain products, but also lobbying your representatives or or signing, you know, petitions or bills to try and work at this more kind of institutional change level, because that really is, you know, what will ultimately ensure that we have regu- strong regulations in place and strong enforcement in place um, so that People don't have to be, the onus doesn't have to be on people, you know, to avoid these chemicals through through buying certain products. Yep. Um, so we've gone through a number of topics <laughs> in our discussion today. Um, and, um, you know, the Centre for Environmental Health just does fantastic work. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, is there anything that we missed, though, anything that you want to add or um, another issue you want to discuss? I'll put in a plug for, for our work down in Paramount, which is in southeastern LA. Um, you know, we've been working with a group of residents down there the last, for several years now, but in the last six months, we've developed a community-led air monitoring project so that residents are able to measure hexavalent chromium in the air. Um, there's a number of metal plating and forging facilities in in the city of Paramount and they release hexavalent chromium which is a cancer causing you know heavy metal into the air uh and this is CH some years ago brought litigation against four of the companies but there there are more still and the concentrations of hexavalent chromium still remain far above EPA's risk threshold um, and so that's been an important part of our work and in particular, something I've been very closely involved in in the last few months is, is trying to do kind of more of this citizen science or community-based science, something I'm, I'm quite passionate about. And we're definitely interested in kind of expanding that community-led air monitoring work uh, to other places in Southern California. You know, the LA region has a host of air quality issues, um, and CEH is always interested in finding new community partners to work with. Okay, so um, firstly, can you just um, describe Hexchrome a little more? Like, what what is the um, impact of that? Yeah, so Hexchrome is, as I mentioned, this kind of cancer-causing chemical. It also is known to cause uh, damage to the kidneys and the lungs, um, respiratory system. Uh, and it's released by these metal plating facilities uh, into the air. And so it's it's really very toxic down to very low levels of exposure. Um, and residents in this community of Paramount that we've been working with for years have noticed kind of metallic smells in the air. 
Um, and there's been a lot of monitoring done by the South Coast Air Quality Management District since about 2016 when this issue kind of first came to the forefront. Uh, but in recent months, in the last kind of year, and at, towards the beginning of the pandemic, the monitoring stopped. Uh, and residents were very concerned, obviously, that there was nobody checking on whether these facilities were complying um, with the regulations put in place for hex chrome emissions. And so our role has really been trying to work with with a group of very engaged residents uh, who want to know kind of have the knowledge and the technical skills to be able to do this monitoring themselves. Firstly, that is um, wonderful work that you're doing and really important work. But uh, this citizen science to work in collaboration with local communities and not just to advocate on their behalf, but to engender advocacy within the community, Mm -hmm. which brings empowerment as well. So final question that I have is to elaborate more on um, what you perceive as best practices of citizen science and um, how we can not only as attorneys and scientists advocate for communities, but engender their own empowerment and advocacy. Yeah, you know, for me, it's really, it's about, it's about fostering partnerships that are more than just equal. I think it's really about letting communities lead and letting them be the ones that are the ones that are impacted, letting them be the ones shaping the the advocacy efforts and the solutions and letting us know how we can support them. So kind of moving away from this model of just, you know, coming into a community and saying, hey, here's what we want to do. And, you know, here's what we're going to ask you guys to do and actually being kind of co-conspirators with them. Um, and, in their advocacy efforts and in their their efforts to really get the air quality um, to be as they deserve, you know, to be healthy levels um, in which they don't have to worry about themselves or or their families developing cancer. And so we've spent a lot of time working directly with, you know, particular residents who are interested in this. And we're now working to kind of figure out what the community wants to do with the data because, you know, I, I strongly believe that the data they're generating is is theirs to use. And we're kind of playing this role of, of supporting, we're like supporting cast, you know, in many ways and letting them lead the efforts. That's fantastic because it can be quite paternalistic in some ways and to engender that partnership and have the community lead and be more of a support to the community, that that's fantastic. That's really the path that we need to go on, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of trust building. And, you know, that's why I think one of the things that I like most about CEH is that we're we're willing to spend that time um, to develop those relationships and to make sure that we have kind of not just positive impacts, but are also going about the work in the right way. Well, thank you very much for your astute analysis of these pernicious issues, Jimena, and for your elaboration of the work for the Center for Environmental Health, which is doing quite important work for our communities. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.